Welcome back to See Also. I'm Brody Lancaster. I'm Kate Jinks. And this week's episode is very kindly sponsored by Will Red. They're a curated book subscription service all about getting the best new release books to you right before everybody starts talking about them. You might actually remember that last episode we chatted about We All Want Impossible Things by Catherine Newman, and that was their pick for January. And last year they actually had quite a few see also faves in there as part of their service including Sunbathing by Isabel Beach and Marshmallow by Victoria Hannon. Yeah, the team has great taste. We're not just saying that because we often have the same taste, Uh, but they will often curate the books that you end up seeing all over your Instagram and book clubs and things like that in the coming months. So as well as conveniently sending you a new book in the mail every month, they also provide like that free bonus smug feeling um, (laughs) that you're reading about something great before everyone else does. If this sounds up your alley, you can head to wellread.com.au to buy a subscription. We'll have the details in the show notes for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Well Read for being our first sponsor of See Also. We've had busy weekends, haven't we, VL? Oh my God, Jinxie, we were both at the theatre <laughs> this week <laughs> for very different shows. Tell me about yours. I went to the forum for a show that was kind of four years in the making. Um, the Irish punk band Fontaine's DC finally made it to Melbourne. They first announced this tour in 2019 in support of their first album and they've released two more albums since then there was a little pandemic in between um they've gotten bigger and bigger um their third album which i consider like a masterpiece uh kind of populated the set list i had an amazing time just like felt all the feelings i think it maybe is like top five gigs of my life wow okay yeah it was like I noticed the lights, which is not a thing I normally do. You know, it sounded great. It was just like perfect from top to bottom. And at the top was like a song that they very rarely play live, like a very emotional song. Um, And then it ended on a song called I Love You, which is my favorite. It was just, just incredible. Tears streaming down your face? Not quite, but Mm -hmm. I was, I was like filled up emotionally. (laughs) I hate it when people say they're nourished by art, but were you nourished? I was well fed. Yeah, well well fed in the theatre. What about you? Well, I went to a literal theatre. Uh, I went to see Primer Facie, uh, which is the new show at MTC, Melbourne Theatre Company. It is the play that everyone has been talking about but mostly in print so nobody knows how to say it to the point where yesterday morning my girlfriend and I were like, is it Farsi? Well, it's, well, okay, according to the legal way of saying it uh-huh. in Australia, it's prima facie. Okay. But then the ticket collection person last <laughs> night said prima facie. So. Gotcha. Wh- however you want to say it, just go <laughs> see it. It originated at Griffin Theatre in Sydney in like 2019, was a big hit. Then it went to. The West End in London and Jodie Comer from Killing Eve. She played the, like, it's a one woman show. It's mm. like an hour and a half, one woman on stage the entire time, almost nothing else, like almost no props, you know. Uh, and so there's been so much written about it. It's like rave reviews, five star reviews. And of course, it's like, 
you know, you have a lot of expectations, even though you try not to every yeah. time you see something. So, so smart. Um, it was really brilliant. It was mm-hmm. really absolutely incredible show. Uh, it stars Sheridan Harbridge, who played the character of Tess in uh, the original Griffin Griffin production. Uh, and she's just, yeah, it's just like a powerhouse show. It's about a criminal defence lawyer who works on a lot of sexual assault cases, but essentially on the side of the perpetrator. And ah. she experiences her own sexual assault and it sort of is flipped. Um, right. And it was just... I hate the word powerful, but God, it was fucking powerful. Yeah. I mean, you're allowed. I cried, Bill. <gasps> Jinxie, that's so rare. Uh, it is It is a rare occurrence. It's not like, what's that film where it's like there's a girl and she just can't cry and that becomes the whole film? What is uh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um, she has like dead parents or something. Yeah, what is that? And fuck, I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> and then at the end she like cries over a man and they're like, oh, my God, you oh my love God. him. Yep. Well, anyway, that's me in the theatre. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I cry in some films. We talked about it. I don't really cry during books mm. and I don't really cry in the theatre either. But You do now. I do now. Everyone's talking about how you cried. Yeah. Oh, God, don't. Shush. Stop <laughs> tweeting. Stop tweeting. Anyway, it's the latest production at MTC. It's on in Melbourne until the 25th of March. If you're in Melbourne, get yourself a goddamn ticket. Yeah, that's a short run. I'm going to make time for this. It's incredible. And if you're in New York, you can go and see the Jodie Comer version of it. It's hitting Broadway in April. So unmissable, unmissable. Wow, maybe we just pop over and do both, see if Jodie makes you cry too. (laughs) Um, You are going to be popping over to Lydia Tars Berlin soon. I sure am. I can't wait. I'm headed over there in a couple of days <laughs> and I'm excited to see the short film that amongst other films I will be seeing for work <laughs> that I can't really talk about. I'm really excited to see the short film of Tar that will be premiered. What's the story here? I don't know. Okay. I have tried not to read too much about it. Gotcha. I'm just hopeful that I get to see it while I'm over there. God, I hope it's like an origin story about Linda or something. Oh, I hope so. That would be incred. And I uh, Kay Stute is the jury president. M. Night Shyamalan was the president last year. That's right. So I'm excited to see our Kay Stu in the flesh, especially uh, now that she's just been announced that she'll be playing Susan Sontag in a biopic, which I I don't know about. You're not into it. I don't know. Like, I, I love her. and She's a great actor. I have loved her in many roles, including Spencer. But I don't see it. I don't see this one. Mm. Prove me wrong. Uh, Case you with like dark, short, wavy hair. We're not seeing it. Yeah. I mean, I guess give anyone the skunk stripe and. I just want to see her out of Chanel and in something. (laughs) Put her in that turtleneck. Put her in like a collared shirt or something. What is it? The academic drag. (laughs) Anyway, I'll be in Berlin for the next couple of weeks. So if you want, uh, you're sick of the sunshine in Melbourne and you need to see a little bit of quote unquote frigid bitch winter, (laughs) you can uh, follow me at Kate Jinx. I'll be posting lots of photos. I've not so lightly demanded like a front on selfie of you with like a high (laughs) collar in Lydia Tarr's like cigar restaurant. It's going to happen. I need it. I went to Laneway Festival on the weekend just for something a little different. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, just being amongst the kids again, it's been three years since the last time I went to Laneway Festival and some girls came up to me, my friend Sinead and said, excuse me, do you have any Panadol? 
And I was like, I so appreciate that I give the look at a young people's music festival (laughs) that I am carrying Panadol because also, yes, I do have Panadol for you. Um, Yeah, so three years since then, we were back, baby. Got there just in time to see a friend of the pod, Harvey Sutherland, tear the... Uh, metaphorical roof off a tent. Um, <laughs> great way to start the day. And then I ended the day watching Fred again, who my friend Sinead, who was back with me, kept referring to as a boy king um, <laughs> because they literally reshuffled the festival set times so that, like, no one was clashing with Fred again. Because- oh, I thought it was because of the, like, upper crustness of his British cast. No, that too. That, okay. <laughs> mostly that, but also because the way that he just, like, it was like the boss, the boss of the festival, I guess. It was like they were – it was unfair to bill anyone else at the same time or something. Um, I got mm. halfway through that set and I went, do you know what? I've had a good day. I'm going to go home. Mm. So I left and um, it was a great decision. I'd got home, had a shower, done a load of laundry, hung up my outfit from the festival. Wow. While the festival was still going. But you missed the black leather bras, bralettes I, that I'm wear. I miss those little, little tiny titties in their <laughs> like very chic little bras. The Heim sisters I find so funny because being one of three sisters, I spent my childhood also making up dances mm. and forcing people to watch them. <laughs> and so seeing them just kind of like play like pretty mid-tempo rock jams and then seeing them stop to like just do a little performance of like a dance that they'd <laughs> synchronized, I just find so funny and weird. I saw a meme yesterday that was like, if you performed for, if you made your family watch your performances as a child in the living room, you're mentally ill now. And I was like, oh, flashbacks of doing many a rendition to like Uptown Girl came flooding back. My sister and I were determined to go on Red Faces. Oh God. And we would like, (laughs) we we were like the way to get on Red Faces is to not dance to a modern pop song, but one of our mums like 60s, -hmm. Billy Don't Be a Hero Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. a favourite. Um, and the doors leading off our lounge room at one point in time were double doors that opened onto like a little sunroom. So that was the backstage. So theatrical, so much can be done with that. There is so much to be done with it. And we did it all. (laughs) Get me up on that stage at Laneway next year. I was having a bit of a down uh, turn in the week, had a bit of a shitty old day the other day. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take myself out for lunch. And I went to a very cute cafe in Fitzroy and I sat down. I was like, I'm going to read the New Yorker on my lunch break. And ended up reading this piece about uh, imposter syndrome. <laughs> I was like, this isn't probably the cheery thing that I really needed. But, yeah, it was um, meeting your energy where it was. <laughs> yeah, just totally. uh, an empanada and imposter syndrome. What a, what a great lunch. But yeah, Leslie. Empanada syndrome. <laughs> empanada syndrome. <laughs> Title of ep. Uh, Leslie Jamison has this great new piece in the New Yorker on imposter syndrome called Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. And it looks at the the origin stories of imposter syndrome. And actually, it was originally imposter the imposter phenomenon. And it was created or named by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. Um, they started exploring the concept 
after or based on their own experiences of feeling fraudulent in like if they did well at any point or if they like even at school until they got to college and then kept feeling it. Um, And it looks at their experiences, how it kind of came to be, but also the modernization of the imposter phenomenon, how it's sort of changed into this imposter syndrome. And now it's like the basis of many hashtag girl boss, like books and like the self-help realm and how it's just become this, like, it's essentially like saying, you know, like self-care has lost all meaning. Yeah. It's almost become shorthand for like, I don't feel like I'm good at my job. It must be imposter syndrome. Yes, absolutely. Rather than like, maybe you're not. (laughs) (laughs) There is always that, isn't there? Hmm. Uh, But yeah, look, I highly recommend this piece. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I really love Leslie Jamison's writing. Uh, This sort of connected back to, I think, her book of essays from 2014, which is probably my favorite, The Empathy Exams, which if you haven't read... I recommend. But yeah, it was such a good piece uh, Mm. to be exploring the reason why this phenomenon sort of came to be named and also how much it affected women in particular and then like what it has become in within the zeitgeist, I guess. Yeah, I find that like the way that those terms change, the more understood they become really interesting like the the way that a term like gaslight or a term like gatekeep you know is used to signal like I'm gonna tell you where I got this skirt it's ASOS you know or (laughs) I don't gatekeep so here are the photos of Harry Styles I took at the concert like it's completely devoid of any structural like implications or something. Yeah. And like gaslighting is, is overused massively and it sort of has lost its meaning. Although Mm. here's like a very good use of it. A couple of years ago, I said to my girlfriend, Zoe, we should watch gaslight, like the original film where the name comes from. And she said, like within seconds, we already watched that babe. Oh, rude. (laughs) Rude. Oh, hey, I remember the film about the crying. Oh, yeah. It's the holiday. It's that Cameron oh my Diaz. God, can't it is cry. the holiday. <laughs> and then she cries over Jude Law and she's like, oh, and then runs down the street. Uh, spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that's a bizarre movie, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so good. We've been at the movies lately, BL. <laughs> And there are some highs, there are some lows, and the <laughs> highs have been really high, and all those lows, whoa, 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 they're dragging on the ground. Yeah, we're going to be talking about After Sun and the Whale. You can probably guess which one's which, but yeah, should, which where should we start? Do you reckon? I'm inclined to end on a high, baby. Go out <laughs> with a bang. Beautiful. Go out with a movie that we both adore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means we have to get the whale out of the way first. <laughs> All right. We'll get that whale out of the way. Get him out of here. Um, you have probably heard by now, um, the whale is a new film by Darren Aronofsky. It was adapted from a, uh, play by playwright Samuel Hunter, who also wrote the script for the film. It marks the return of Brennan Fraser to like starring roles, six minute standing ovation at Venice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Who doesn't get a standing ovation at Venice? That's the thing, you know? Every film gets a standing ovation. Uh, now that I've seen The Whale, 
I know those standing O's aren't a mark of quality. Also, don't worry, darling. Yeah, I mean... There was a lot to worry about there. You do a standing O at those events because like the cast are there and the director's there and it's a big gala event, so everyone's clapping. Yeah, and they just keep on clapping if you stay. Yeah, honestly, I think that they mean near nothing. Yeah, well, now especially so. So The Whale was first um, staged as a play in 2013. It's about a man named Charlie. It is entirely set in his apartment in Idaho, and it's essentially set during like a week at what we're told is going to be like the end of his life because he has been binge eating to the point where he weighs something like 300 kilograms. Um, He has like heart issues And the only people who come into his apartment are his friend and caregiver, Liz, played by Hong Chow, who is a bright spot in this film. MVP. MVP, as always. Uh, His daughter, his estranged daughter, Ellie, played by Sadie Sink um, of the Taylor Swift music video. um, Sorry, short film. I mean, short film. (laughs) Um, Nominate her for Oscars. 25 minutes standing ovation. (laughs) Um, And Stranger Things. Yes, Stranger Things. And um, Ty Simpkins, who uh, I have only seen as a literal child in the first Jurassic World film, plays a Christian missionary who comes door knocking on Charlie's door. And Samantha Morton, who plays his ex-wife. So the story is that in the past, Charlie uh, left his wife and daughter for one of his English literature students, who was a grown man, and basically has not really had contact with either of them since. His teenage daughter is very angry and resentful and says so at the top of her lungs the whole movie. And his ex-wife, they don't have a whole lot of contact, but she makes a brief appearance in the film. I had no idea Samantha Morton was in this film and she's a brilliant actress and lover and everything. And even the fact that even she was like, had very little to do in this film Mm -hmm. kind of says everything you need to know about it. Yeah. It's like, it's such a good cast. Like it's a great cast, but the direction of them was, I think everyone did the best they could do with what they were given. And they're all really clearly think that it's a great film and a great script and very empathetic story and all that kind of stuff, but no one's doing a great job in there. Well, I mean, of course, Brendan Fraser and Hong Chow, who's they're most on screen, but yeah, to have Samantha Morton sort of not be the Samantha Morton character that we all know and love. And she's such a brilliant, brilliant performer. And she's just like, I don't know, the directing, I guess, was not at its best. The characters too, like Charlie, I found, um, he, I found him very sad to watch, not because he is fat and alone and sad because that's essentially all this character gets to be, but because, all he is doing is like absorbing everything people say to him and he's kind of not meeting them on like so much of a human level because he just has to be this kind of martyr through the whole film where like people are like, I hate you and you're fat and disgusting and get out of my life. And he's like, okay, I love you. Aren't people amazing? People can be nothing but amazing. It's so deeply, deeply depressing. Mm. Um, It's also like all 
inferred meaning like Charlie is so fat so he must be so sad he must be trying to end his life because there's no other reason someone could like quote unquote let themselves get this way like it is every awful thing that people have written in the comments on the internet um about fat people but kind of repackaged as like truly like trauma porn or something yeah I've look I'm sure that the original play was I don't know. I'm sure it was good. Was it? I don't know. I don't know. Darren Aronofsky <laughs> was like struck by it. But I feel that this and like obviously and I think the you know you've read more about this BL because you've got a piece coming out in the monthly very soon about it. But the playwright who adapted his own play for the film, like it's sort of based somewhat on his own experiences, and it felt very much that perhaps the director could have, I don't know, have had some kind of similar story or some deeper understanding of this character. But it's like Darren Aronofsky is the wrong man for the job. Essentially, the only person who would be worse to direct this film is Lars von Trier. (laughs) Don't you think? But see, at least that would be visually interesting. (laughs) You know, he'd do something fucked up with it. Whereas like (laughs) there was nothing fucked up about the whale. And I would have appreciated that a little more. Like I think everything was fucked up about the whale. But also like Charlie had no edge to him. He had no personality. No No one in this film had a personality, I'm realizing now. Nobody did. They were all just ciphers for like... Um, like scorned or sad or grieving or loyal, you know, they were just like traits. They were, they were not like fleshed out characters at all. They didn't have their own opinions really, did they? No. And it also felt flat, so flat. Um, It also felt like a play. I've been listening to that podcast, Sentimental Garbage, and they recapped recently all the boyfriends from Gilmore Girls. And when they talked about uh, Richard, the grandfather from Gilmore Girls, they described his like presence in the show as very a play. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what the title was. It's like people come in, you know, Charlie's sitting on his couch and we see a shadow of someone in the background. So you're like, Ooh, there's going to be a knock at the door. Who will it be? It's just people coming and going from his apartment. It's, it's really one of those, like it could just be national theater live. Like it could just be a filmed version of the actual production because you don't see any of the outside world never comes in. And it's just like one character having like a hissy fit or like some kind of traumatic breakdown and sitting behind a door and then the other person sitting on the other side of the door and you're like, I can see this on a revolve. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can see this production. Yes. And it's not, it's not giving cinema. It's not giving cinema. It is not giving cinema, except it has a very cinematic score. Oh God, that score was so oppressive. It might've been the most offensive part. Like (laughs) I'm a fat person watching this film. I expected to be offended by it, but the things that I was offended by were not what I expected. Like, I don't really give a fuck about the fat suit or like the politics of it because I don't think the film is very smart. No. It's almost like being offended by like a kid saying something rude. Like they, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And that was the sensation <laughs> I got from watching this movie is like, that's a good way of saying it. You're just like fucking dipshits. But then the score I found the most horrifying part of it because the movie seems to be saying like, we're so empathetic to this man's life that we're spending all this time like hanging out with him and getting to know him. But then like the first time he stands up from the couch and you see 
what his body looks like in full for the first time. The score immediately transported me to Jurassic Park. The moment that Laura Dern looks up and sees a fucking Brachiosaurus for the first time, like look at this beast in front of us for Mm. the first time. That's the extent of this like orchestral score. And the same score comes back in when Charlie is like, rummaging around for like whipped cream to put on his pizza while he's binging and he's like begging for fried chicken and yeah getting pizza delivered every night it's like this is not a human being no it's really it's really not he's yeah. really not yeah. um it's a very kind of uh contained sort of animal film yeah you know it's not about a human man and even like it opens with him jerking off to like gay porn and that's just not even treated in this like okay way like it's very much like oh god get a load of this guy right right from the start look how disgusting he is and it's gay porn like oh give me a fucking break a friend of mine said it really well to me she said it's a miserable time at the movies. It's a truly horrifying two hours. Yeah, I got home and my girlfriend said, was it worth seeing for Brendan Fraser's performance? Because he's being, you know, so acknowledged for this incredible comeback performance, Oscar nominated at set. And I was like, no, you, all you have to do is know that Brendan Fraser is back and maybe catch the next one. Yeah, I would like to see him in a different kind of father-daughter film playing like, a dad with a life mm. would be really nice. Or just good. a man with a life. That'd be nice too. Yeah. He could, do, I don't know, do something good for himself. It's especially offensive now I think about it that like Brendan Fraser has been gone from big roles and movies for so long and all he had to hope for is something as small as this. Yeah. And that Aronofsky chose him essentially because he had been out of the limelight for so long and he didn't want to cast someone, everyone, you know, knew. Yeah. I was listening to, I think it was Brendan Fraser was on Howard Stern recently and <laughs> what <laughs> Howard Stern in the past, I know is like a very problematic man, but now he does like really, good, really good celebrity really? interviews. He's one with Harry Styles a few years ago. It was like the best interview Harry Styles has ever given. And wow. Okay. Yeah. How are me surprised? How it is a, I learned a lot about interviewing from him, but he was talking to Brendan Fraser who said that Darren Aronofsky essentially wanted an actor who people knew, but hadn't seen in a long time so that it gave a kind of what happened to him impression. That's bad. It like tells you everything you need to know about what he truly thinks of like, Fat people, sick people, disabled people, mm-hmm. because Charlie is like a version of all of those things in he this is. film, you know? And like, I guess this brings us to like the conversation around Brendan Fraser recently, mm. which I think we both find just like extremely infantilizing. Truly. I, I, I feel like people are only referring to him as his first name, like our friend Brendan. <laughs> Our friend Brendan, we've all been really mean to him and we need to um, repent and support (laughs) Brendan in his movie. No matter what you think of the film, this is about Brendan, guys. It's Brendan's big moment. It's Brendan's big day. I I feel like the the crux of it, and maybe this, this is just a theory, maybe I'm wrong, is like he was a fixture of films in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so that means that he's like linked to the childhoods of the kind of like BuzzFeed, 
this was that person then feel old now Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) meme generation, you know, like famously nostalgic. Mm -hmm. And so I find it kind of, I found it hard to articulate without sounding like callous because he did experience like abuse at the hands of like truly the power structures of Hollywood and felt very blacklisted and shut out when he um, spoke about that. So it is hard to talk about this without sounding like a horrible person, but I want to be able to champion his return without it being in this film, I guess. Yeah. 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 I know like A24 have a book out about him, like a fanzine about Brent, our Brendan. I don't know. It's really, yeah. Infantilizing is the best word for it, for sure. I mean, yeah. like, yeah, I loved him in Encino Man. I've been on The Mummy, The Ride at Universal Studios. And I've been there the whole the whole time, BL. I referenced the movie Blast from the Past just yesterday <laughs> at Laneway Festival. <laughs> it's it, just like, just let him live. Let him live. Do you know what it reminds me of is like that that genre of like memes that go around that's like, oh my God, I saw this old man eating alone in a restaurant and I started yeah. crying. Yeah, like that meme where it was like a guy who would go up and bring a bunch of flowers to like single women eating alone at a table. And then there was that one woman who was like, fuck off you little jerk. Like, yeah, this is my time. Like I'm having a great dinner, like by myself. Now I got to carry these fucking flowers home. Yeah. Like don't feel sorry for me. I feel like everyone's like really pitying him. Yes. And I think partly it is because of the, like of the abuse that he, you know, suffered. And I feel that as a society or as a culture, the way of dealing with that is really like, oh, you poor little victim. Mm. Um, but don't worry, we're here for you now. Totally. Well, it's not seeing anyone as a human being and seeing them as like what they mean to you. Mm. Yeah. Yuck. I have a few see also's. Um, mostly I've come through like researching the piece that I wrote, which will be out in the March issue of the monthly. So a couple of weeks after this podcast episode, Um, there's one piece that I found really interesting. It's written by Alyssa Wilkinson in Vox. And one thing we haven't mentioned is that the whale takes place during the 2016, um, Republican primaries. So in the, it's not part of the storyline or anything, but in the background, Charlie is often watching like Donald Trump and Marco Rubio and all of these people at debates and things like that. And I saw some reviews that were saying essentially like it's set in 2016 for no reason, Or, you know, it's set in Idaho for no reason. And Alyssa Wilkinson wrote this piece that puts the time and place in perspective that I didn't have, which is kind of goes into like um, the context of that place as a place where like Mormons and this growing group of like Christian reconstructionists are popping up. And um, also like kind of what 2016 means in the context of like, almost like a biblical flood, fucking Aronofsky loves an end of days metaphor. Yeah. So 2016, very end of days vibes. Um, A really fun see also for the whale is to read basically anything Guy Branham, the comedian has written about this film. You know, he is himself a fat gay man. He's also a brilliant pop culture critic. Um, He had a conversation with um, NPR's Glenn Weldon um, And they covered so much territory when it comes to the whale, including a tweet that Guy Branham posted where he just wrote, the whale is camp. (laughs) And Glenn asked him to explain Mm -hmm. what that meant. And he was basically like the moment where Charlie is choking and Hong Chao quote, 
bounces on him like a trampoline. Um, he described as being a, a moment that could play in Palm Springs drag bars for all time. <laughs> he, he talks about how the film opens with Charlie masturbating himself to death to gay porn that's, quote, just a bunch of shirtless guys hugging above the waist. <laughs> like, there's absolutely nothing sexual. It's like they, no. they were too terrified to make Charlie's sexuality really yeah. prominent. Um, no, it's more like, here's this disgusting thing he's doing. Look this at disgusting this disgusting man. Yucky, yucky, yucky. Um, he, the thing that I really loved Guy Branham adding to this, though, is that he talked about how Charlie is made to be the absolute saddest and most dismal version of what a fat person and a gay person could ever be. You know, like Charlie could have the same feelings that he has in a different body or a different context. He could be a social person, but they have stripped away any kind of aspirational element from his identity. And Guy Branham describes his his diet essentially as saying like, you know, he could order a meatball sub or two one night and get Chinese another night. It doesn't have to be all meatball subs. <laughs> and so in the spirit of like um, wanting more for Charlie, Guy Branham took the whale to France on holiday with him. He bought a copy of the script <laughs> and took it on holiday. He said, just because the idea of what this fat gay guy's life could be was so limited, I wanted my copy of The Whale to do some fun things in its life. <laughs> so he took it to see, he took it to museums, he took it to beautiful restaurants um, and said, when it was all over, I set him in the azure waters of the Mediterranean so The Whale could return to the sea, a better one than Samuel D. Hunter could have thought possible for a 600-pound gay. Great. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Adore. I've only got one C also. Mm -hmm. Any other film <laughs> in the cinema right now. Truly. Truly. Like, think of the worst movie you've heard is out at the moment. Go see that. Go see that instead. Okay, we need to, like, cleanse the palate. Oh, my God. This is, like, we need, what's it, the mint sorbet. We need to sniff, like, a canister of coffee beans, followed by your own elbow. You know the inner crease of your elbow? I've never you... heard that one. The coffee beans I was familiar with. <laughs> That's the other thing if you're, like, trying on scents. You mm -hmm. smell it and then you sniff the inside of your arm. Now we're going to talk about a movie we loved. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird intro, isn't it? The intro, the inside of our arm is after sun. <laughs> The debut feature by director Charlotte Wells. I haven't read that in any of the glowing reviews, but uh, we're just putting it out there. Yeah. We're better critics than some. <laughs> so After Sun is the debut feature by Charlotte Wells, who's a British-American filmmaker, originally from Edinburgh and now lives in Brooklyn. Um, it premiered at Cannes in Director's Fortnight. It has gone on to be in every festival. It was at MIFF. Uh, it featured in our Bright Horizons competition and Charlotte Wells was an international guest at the festival. It's a very beautiful film that has swept every single awards pool. It's It's got everything. It's got Paul Mescal. It's got a really incredible young natural child actress. Yeah, uh, Frankie Corio. Yeah. She's incredible. She plays his daughter. So Paul Mescal plays Callum, who is a young dad, like 31 years old, um, who has taken his daughter on holiday to Turkey um, for kind of like a week or so. Yeah. Staying at like a little family friendly resort. And it's just a really compact, um, intimate 
portrait of like a father and daughter. It's so, it's such, so such a beautifully made constrained film. It really truly feels like a memory of like a childhood vacation. It really does. And, and so Sophie's parents are, so she's about 11 years old and Sophie's parents have split up a number of years ago. We don't really know much of the backstory except that, Her parents are still on speaking terms, but she doesn't get to spend a lot of time with her dad. And so this is like a very special experience where she and him are, yeah, on holidays in this kind of dilapidated (laughs) resort. Uh, You know, they're staying at the place that doesn't have the good pool, et cetera, and they have to cross the road to go to the better one. (laughs) These are really sweet details in the film. Um, It's set in the like mid to late 90s and it does it in this very sort of effortless way of that you can sort of just tell that it's in that time period, partly because of the production design, but also the really fantastic use of a video camera throughout this film. So the film is this sort of fragmented memory of a holiday. So we see, like the viewer sees them on holiday in sort of real time and Sophie recording her dad on this new like camcorder that she has and like fiddling around with it and then him looking at it and then them hooking it up to the TV so that you can see what you're shooting in real time. And then we also get to see Sophie as uh, an older woman who is revisiting this VHS tape as she kind of is around the same age as her dad was on that holiday. Mm, So it's kind of like tinted with this kind of like nostalgia and like, I don't know about you, Jinxie, but like watching that um, Sophie character in the past, she's such a brilliant little actress and she does this really gorgeous thing in her performance, which is subtle, but it's so present, which is like she, you can tell that she's of an age where she like understands that she has a cool parent that like (laughs) the fact she has a dad who people mistake for her older brother is like kind of like a cool little ace up her sleeve or something. Yeah. They hang out and play pool together. Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's really sweet. And she's sort of on the cusp of adolescence. 11 is such a deeply awkward age Mm -hmm. and there are all these like older kids around and so she's very intrigued by them and her dad's like yeah sure be safe go hang out with them that's fine yeah and he is dealing with his own shit as anyone in their early 30s is but also you know he's watching him this young dad like being so present with his child being so in the moment with her being as much a friend as he is a parent And trying to be responsible, but also, like you said, like giving her enough freedom for her to like live. Um, And then there will just be flashes of realizing that he's performing that role Mm. um, because he is like struggling with like his own inner demons and depression is kind of like there on the surface. Um, Yeah, it's truly devastating (laughs) um, watching Paul Meskel's performance. He just got nominated for an Oscar for this, which is like so earned it's like a brilliant performance yeah I was really thrilled because I I think we've talked about this before I don't even watch the Oscars I don't really watch awards shows but I was like all right well we'll have to watch now yeah we support Fitzroy's own Paul Mescal (laughs) I know he's like Fitzroy's favorite son after Tony Armstrong (laughs) tied they're tied as far as I'm concerned um you mentioned the time the film is set in and it it places you in like 
I want to say 97, 98. So specifically with just like the strains of tub thumping and like <laughs> never ever by all saints and mm-hmm. five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. My Oh My by Aqua. I made a note of because <laughs> that was the first CD I ever owned in 1998. Yeah. I actually think the soundtrack is really important to the film. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a very authentic nineties soundtrack. It's not a cool soundtrack. It's very much like a lot of songs that only exist on like hits of 97 you know and you're like it's, yeah. they don't exist anywhere else you're never going to hear them yeah um but then it's got you know like lightning seeds and brand van 3000 personal favorite when that hits drinking in la great use of blurs uh tender and of course under pressure yeah but it is um yeah it's a really it's a really great soundtrack but the score is also very beautiful it's by mm-hmm. oliver coates he also composed the music for the stranger the thomas m wright film oh. that's on netflix now Huh, moody. Very different scores. Yeah, you'd hope so. You would hope so. Very <laughs> different stories. Um, there's also like the treatment of music in a very specific karaoke scene. Don't, don't let's not even talk about okay. it. But yeah, no, let's do. I it's mean, so good. You mentioned Tender by Blur. That that song fucks me up. Mm-hmm. Like the karaoke scene in this film <clears throat> fucks me up. And like you said, Eleven is just on that precipice of of adolescence where you have the kind of like shamelessness of being a kid and in a moment it switches to like deep self-consciousness and you just know that everything Sophie is experiencing on this trip, doing karaoke in a hotel, talking to her dad about very specific things, you just know that these are going to be talked about in therapy in 20, 30 years, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I really loved all the pieces where she, Sophie is um, filming her dad or just filming the water or filming whatever. She's just making her own little experimental films basically. And she's just talking to herself. There's this like little narration of what she sees and what she's thinking. And Mm. I thought that was all really, really special. Mm. Uh, And there's just such an easy tenderness between Paul Meskell and Frankie Corio. And I think, Partly that's they did go uh, like for the rehearsal periods, they went on a holiday together in Turkey uh, for two weeks. The way he tells the story, he's like, I asked her parents if I could just take her away for a while. They love how um, her parents are like her dad is featured in the film in the background, one of the scenes. And her mom is I started following her mom on Twitter because she's just like the proudest mom in the land. Very sweet. Love. And also Paul Meskel's sister on Twitter posting all these great, like, photos of the family reacting to him getting the nomination. So oh, yeah. Cute. cute. As if we need more reason to, like, root yeah. for that family. I know, <laughs> you right? know? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of discussion around this film about how close it is to Charlotte Wolfe's own life. It was sort of inspired by a holiday that she did take with her father. Uh, and her father was also dealing with a lot of the same issues that Paul Meskel's character is in the film, uh, inspired by photographs of this holiday. And yeah, there's so much sort of talked about of like, is this just the holiday she took with her dad? And, um, it was like inspiration, not this straight tape, but she did a great interview in the guardian. It was one of the best that I read. So good. 
um, she talks about it and she says, uh, when you watch something, you immediately look up, is this the creator? But I have a very different take on that impulse. Now, a lot of work went into this as a film and that work is often discounted by saying, this is just what happened. I thought, Isn't that so true? Like I'm so interested in, uh, quote unquote, like auto fiction films and like people putting their real life into, I mean, hog hive rise, yeah. obviously, but yeah, if you just like, well, this just happened to this person that does discount them as like an artist a and, of, and the yeah. levels that you have to kind of put in and the work that you have to put in to actually adapt anything as well and to make it sort of cinematic or to make it a different story. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And there are so many like um, touches in this film that obviously it could not have happened in real life. You know, there is this recurring motif of like a rave or a nightclub mm. setting that you know, watching the film exists purely in adult Sophie's memory. And like, you kind of imagine the way she thinks of her dad now as an adult, as a parent herself, you know, you hear a baby crying in the background of the scenes of her watching the footage back on the camcorder. And um, yeah, the way the film like visualizes like reminiscing and nostalgia and memory and mm. how that memory gets skewed as you get older. Like it's so, so gorgeous. Yeah. And that, you know, the realization that your parents are people too, you know, God, and you're like, yeah. Oh God. Like as soon as you hit sort of a specific age, like you were talking about turning 33 and like, that's the age that your mum had you. Uh, and you know, I was talking last week about, um, how my mum died in 2018 and, that I'm sort of now unable to ask her any questions that I didn't get to ask. And the, if I can ask someone, it would be, you know, like my aunt or her cousin, but their stories are different to my mother's stories. Yeah. So I'll never ever get those stories. Like I'll never get how she felt about certain things that I mm. foolishly didn't ask about in time. Mm. And I think that that there's a lot of that in this film of like that this character of Callum is sort of stuck in this moment and that Sophie, as she's older, is sort of, you know, trying to reach her father. Yeah. It hasn't, you describing that, it made me think of something else we loved last year, the resort, like that idea of someone being like trapped in the past in a memory and the ability to like go there and like pluck them out is mm. like, impossible but you want it so badly yeah and like what would you lose if you actually missed out mm. on all those years mm. this is my favorite film of the last year uh, I've seen it like three times at this point mm. um I had to see it a number of times for you know for the festival and I've taken people back to see it now that it's getting a release mm. and I every single time it sort of hits different one time I went there was a woman sobbing so much that she couldn't breathe properly at the end. And she just kept saying, it really got me like between <sighs> massive gulps of air. And everyone was like trying to help this woman in the cinema. Um, but that's not to say that it's like this deeply depressing, sad film. It's, it's not a miserable time in the movies like no. The Whale is. It's a really beautiful film and I think a lot of people get, uh, like have uh, sort of differing levels of emotions around it. But um, what about you, BL? I completely feel that. Like it, it is not, a, it, it deals with sad subject matter, but it is so full of life and like full of joy and light but that almost makes the sad part sadder mm. because it, 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 you know, takes you on such a like journey through like 
tone and like these, you get to know these people so deeply. And so when sad stuff happens, you feel that it's happening almost before it does. Mm. I saw it at MIF. I've only seen it the one time. So I saw it on the big IMAX screen with my friend Georgia and we were both like <sighs> at the end, she stayed for the Q and a, and I had to get out of there. I like really truly felt being down in the depths of the IMAX in a way that I don't think I ever have before. And I was like, I need air on my face. I mm-hmm. need to like breathe in some fresh air after like seeing that film. Um, and so I have some regrets about missing the Q and a, but Georgia and I did send each other like five minute long voice notes, just back and forth all night of like, and when he said this, you just really know that what he was dealing with was this, <laughs> like that's the, that's the energy. And it's, it has, it's stuck. It's, it sticks with you, this film. Like it's so, it's that thing of like, you make a work that is so specific and personal that so many people can relate to it despite it not being their story. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of those films that has, because it's won so many awards, the wiki list of accolades is like fully insane. It is huge, (laughs) this list, but it is, like I don't see it at all as an overhyped film in any way. Like I think it, it is really connecting um, to different audiences in a way that people haven't been, I don't know, seeing at the cinema in, yeah. in some time. It's also such a treat for like a truly indie film, this special to get such wide acclaim and release as well. Like the fact that it's coming to cinemas after doing all the film festival circuit last year, I'm so excited to see it again. Like, Charlotte Wells, fuck me up in a different way next time I see this film. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be out in cinemas in Australia uh, in end of Feb mm-hmm. and very soon. And it's already streaming on Mubi elsewhere, I do believe. Do you have some Cielsos? I sure do. Um, we'll have a link to that Guardian uh, interview with Charlotte that um, I mentioned before. There's also a really great uh, conversation that was recorded at the New York Film Festival uh, between Charlotte Wells and Mia Hansen-Love, another filmmaker that I really adore, uh, talking about memory, time and autofiction in After Sun and also uh, Mia Hansen-Love's film One Fine Morning, which is getting a release pretty soon. So that's a really great interview. Also, if you, like me, have seen After Sun a number of times now and want a little bit more, you can actually watch her short films online for free, which is great. On Vimeo, you can watch uh, Laps and Tuesday. And then there's also Blue Christmas, which is available on um, her own website, charlottewells.com. She names some really great films in her interviews and in her Criterion closet picks. So I would recommend all of those. They're all favorites of mine as well. But you talked about the incredible rave scene and it really made me want to rewatch Morven Calla by Lynn Ramsey, a film I really adore from 2003 starring our Samantha Morton, who wasn't given enough in the whale, but my God, does she get a lot in Morven Calla iconic rave scene. It's a Samantha Morton mint sorbet. It truly is. A real palate cleanser, that film. Fuck, I haven't seen that in years. Um, I've got to see also, which is the film Ma, M-A, not the one with Octavia Spencer. Okay, because I was like, Bill, where are you going with this? <laughs> so Celia Ralston Hall is in After Sun. She plays adult Sophie. Um, I recognized her when she popped up in the film and I was like, 
is there going to be dancing in this film? Because I know her as a choreographer. Um, she has worked as a choreographer or movement coach on like a bunch of TV shows and movies, like the staircase last year. She also choreographed the dance scene in the holiday house episode of girls. Oh, which we went quite deep on that time. We really did an iconic episode of girls, a bottle app. Um, so her directorial debut, I think it played at Miff many years ago. I interviewed her when she was here. You never forget an interview in the lobby of the Sofitel. Um, <laughs> her film Ma is a completely, uh, dialogue free retelling of Mary Magdalene's like journey through the desert. I don't know very much about Bible stuff. I'm not Darren Aronofsky, but, um, yeah, it's like a beautiful, stunning film. Watch it when you have like a full attention span because it, like I said, dialogue free. You got to watch everything. Um, and I believe it is streaming on Amazon Prime these days. After you have seen After Sun, do not click this link if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, there is one of those script to scene videos on YouTube and it compares the written screenplay to the final scenes of the film and you kind of can see where things changed and adapted and also just seeing how this kind of very minimal dialogue direction in the screenplay came to life in like one of the most affecting ends of a film I've seen in a really long time. All right. It's time for also also Jinxie. What do you have this week? I've got to watch also because, mm. you know, we haven't been watching enough, but this is a new TV show. It's called Queer Australia. It's quite close to my heart. Mm-hmm. It is written, produced, presented, etc., by my partner Zoe Coombs-Ma, who has been on the pod, guest of the pod, girlfriend of the pod. It starts on ABC and iView. It premieres on Tuesday the 28th of February. There's three hour-long episodes and – it basically tells the like untold, completely fascinating story of the queer history of Australia, including pre-colonial times. Uh, Zoe has been working on it for so long now. I'll be just so excited to, to be able to share this because I have seen many cuts of it and many bits of interviews and you know, I've seen all the archival footage that they're using and I'm so excited that other people will soon get to see this. Uh, Zoe has sort of chosen to interview people who wouldn't normally perhaps have their story told. It's sort of, it's not just about drag queens, you know, it's like, it's not just sequins here on this TV show. It's truly fascinating, brilliant. I mean, I can't say enough, but watch it. It's on ABC and iView from Tuesday, 28th of February. Weekly episodes? Three weekly episodes. It's appointment viewing. I cannot wait to finally see it. I'm so excited. So proud of Zoe. I have a follow also in light of The Whale. Um, It is an Instagram account called Fat Art History. Um, It's truly like a joyous follow. It introduces me to old work. Um, there is a painting called Witches Going to Their Sabbath by Louis Ricardo Falero, which I had never seen before from the 1800s, um, as well as new artists to follow like Andrew Cernov, who painted a lady holding her just heaving giant rack with <laughs> very big nipples on a tray alongside a goblet of wine and a lobster. Lunch. <sighs> I've got a sleep also. Mm-hmm. It's the slip silk 
sleep mask. I know everyone's talked about it already, but I wanted to throw in my two cents on it. I'm not being paid for it. A lot of influencers are, but it is actually that good. Well, you can send me some money. Um, I feel like I'm getting more vampiric as I age. Like I used to be able to take a nap anywhere, but now I really need something covering my peepers. I've used like the Muji cotton ones for years and years and years and finally upgraded ahead of my trip to Berlin. Um, and it is as good as everyone says. It's like pure silk. It's a like very high silk. What's whatever, however you say it. It's very high quality silk. It's really good. You don't get any weird creases. It knocks me out. That's really frigid bitch of you. It is extremely frigid bitch of me. (laughs) My next one is a supplements also. (laughs) I think this is also something that people get paid to promote. And is this an MLM? Maybe. No, it's not. It's vitamins. It's from the company Vitable. I don't know if you like for years have been hearing or seeing ads for care of vitamins in the US. You can't get them in Australia because they're, you know, it's like health products in America only. But it's pretty much the same system, but it's for Australia. So you go through an online quiz and you're like, what are your health concerns? Or like, how's your digestion? How's your sleep? Do you have hormonal imbalances, like all this varying shit. So I talked about like wanting more energy and focus, um, you know, uh, my hair, skin and nails, I would love improved all the different things like that. And then it kind of like spits you out a little personalized roster of daily vitamins. Um, and you can purchase them on like a subscription basis or, uh, like a one-off subscription. And they took a little while to arrive, but when they arrived, I saw why, because it's completely personalized, obviously, but it comes with a booklet that tells you everything about each of the vitamins in your little daily packet, um, including like this one will make your pee really bright yellow. It's nothing to worry (laughs) about, which I very much appreciate. So I don't have to Google it myself. Um, And they come in this like metal canister where it dispenses like one package of vitamins each day. And I know what you're wondering, all of the plastic, it's all compostable plastic. Each little packet has my name on it and like so completely personalized. Um, so yeah, I got two months worth. I downloaded their app because if you log every day that you take your vitamins, you earn points to get discounts. Anyway, I know this sounds like an ad. It's not. I just am so sick of like buying big jars of vitamins and then I never take them. This is good. Yeah. Good info. Yeah. Sign me up. Go sign yourself up. Avon calling. <laughs> Do the quiz, babes. <laughs> I've got a drink also. My last one. It's the Bandwagon Dry by Four Pillars Gin. Uh, As you know, I do love to road test a non-alcoholic drink as I try to drink less during the week, etc. Um, And Four Pillars a favorite perennial gin favorite, uh, but they've been working on a non-alc version for many, many years. It has all the same botanicals that they use that you would be familiar with. Um, it uses like juniper and orange and lemon myrtle, but it also has pepperberry and red chili. So it's got a slight kick to it. Uh, it's the most interesting of like the faux gins that I've had. And I think I've had them all. This one tastes the least like grass, which I think a lot of people would be uh, keen for because many on the market truly just taste like grass. Yeah. And not like 
interesting grass. No. No, I'm not talking that. Uh, anyway, you can buy this at grocery stores in Australia, which is quite cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and there's a Bloody Shiraz version, but I only drink that one at Christmas, like the actual Bloody Shiraz gin at Christmas time for some unknown reason that makes absolutely no sense to me, but it does. Christmassy colors, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my final one is a pod also, and this comes from a listener recommendation. Um, it's the podcast Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily. And it's the Stephen and Lily part that is important to remember because ages ago, I think I mentioned in passing a, a podcast called Celebrity Book Club. It's hosted by two female comedians. There's another one called Celebrity Book Club hosted by someone else who like goes on bitch sesh a lot. And she was like, I started mine first. She didn't. And then there's another one called Celebrity Book Club that we'll talk about like, I don't know, like Shop Girl written by celebrity Steve Martin. This one is all celebrity memoirs. Stephen and Lily are genuinely two very funny people. I really, I've just been binging the podcast the last couple of weeks One thing that I really love is that the title of each episode tells you the celebrity's name and then in between gives you like an inverted commas, like nickname. So it's Aziz, Awesome Sauce and Zari. (laughs) And something that I thought you would enjoy, Jinxie, is that the Tegan and Sarah book is (laughs) the way they write it is Tegan and Sarah (laughs) in inverted commas. Yeah, because I love to call them Tegan and or Sarah. Tegan and or Sarah, famously. (laughs) Um... That was really funny because they disagreed on uh, the memoir because Lily, who is gay, was like, this was so horny um, (laughs) when they were teenagers and they were hooking up with their friends, whereas Stephen was like, they didn't describe the fucking. And she was like, it's implied that they're teens hooking up with their friends. And he was like, I want to hear about penetration. Anyway, that was a really funny episode. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Highly wreck. I used to be in a uh, celesbian like DM group with that Lily was in. It was like ten of us sharing like weird celesbian gossip. Oh my god, I love. I've heard <laughs> bits of your off mic celesbian <laughs> gossip, and I can only imagine what that group contained. And she also used to do L word trivia. And uh, once when I was in New York, she did this amazing L word trivia night at uh, Henrietta Hudson, longtime lesbian bar. And they actually had Betty, the band who does the L word theme song play live. Holy shit. That and, theme song. And you know how the Fontaine show was one of the best, like five <laughs> best shows of your life, BL? Seeing Betty do the L word theme top five for me. I can fucking imagine. What is that? What is that theme song? It's like learning, living, driving, fucking. Talking, laughing, loving, breathing, party, fucky, fuck. Thanks again to Well Read for sponsoring this week's episode of See Also. If you are listening to this episode before March 7, you're a prompt press play every time an episode drops in your feed kind of listener, you have plenty of time to pop over and subscribe to Well Read in time to receive their March book, which Jinxie and I are both so excited to receive. We have been sworn to secrecy, so we can't say any more until next month when it arrives in people's mailboxes, but we're pretty sure that it's a title that we're all going to be hearing a lot about very soon. I really can't wait for it. I'm really excited to get that book. Like in all seriousness, I am thrilled Thrilled by the premise. Uh, well Read does let you choose a month subscription or one where you receive a new book every two months so you can really kind of work out what your reading schedule is. Their team reads 
everything. So in the same way that when I'm picking films for a festival, I see everything. You know, you're getting the best. Yeah. And so they pick out only the best ones to send out to their subscribers. And they also do gift options, which is a very cool thing, Mm. I think. So you can give a friend like a three, a six, a nine or a 12 month subscription. Anyway, we're going to leave all the information about Well Read in the show notes and you can find out more at wellread.com.au. Thanks so much for listening to See Also. Please follow us over on Instagram. We are at See Also Podcast there. And you know, if you've got a little bit of time on your hands, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. It makes us so happy. It's We're really easy to find on Apple Podcasts. Just head to the Indie Faves curated <laughs> list. They just... We're topping the the best of list. We're kind of like the after sun of podcasts. <laughs> From Cool Girl Summer to Indie Faves. <laughs> it's very on brand, I've got to say. Also, thanks as always to Laneway Highlight Harvey Sutherland for our podcast theme music and Samuel Hodge for our beautiful artwork. Yeah, you can go and see one of his shows at the Casula Powerhouse right now if you're in Sydney. Oh my God, chic. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to watch Ghost World in preparation for next week's episode. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.